Let's open God's Word this morning. Luke chapter 3. We're making steady progress through this fantastic book. Luke chapter 3 and we're looking at verses 1 to 14 this morning. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. That always sounds like a um, disease of the uh, vocal cords, doesn't it? Trachonitis. And Lysinius was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, if you would, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 19 to 21. This is the Lord God speaking about and to his nation Israel. But the truths he relays here about the conversion process is what I want to highlight to us today. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 19. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. 
But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. We're in an interesting place in the book of Luke. After Luke gives us a description of Jesus' birth and just a small glimpse of Jesus as a boy, Luke now resumes his narrative, his storytelling with John, the messenger of the coming Messiah. When you look at those first two verses, why would he mention all those specific rulers and governors? Why? Well, he wants to specify for us a very, very specific historical period in time. You see, he's trying to point out to us, to his readers, not just Theophilus, but any readers to come after that. Remember, he's setting up a record of Jesus' work and ministry. He puts us in the frame of when did it happen? And he gives us a very precise date. He says in verse 1, it happened in the 15th year when Tiberius Caesar was Caesar over the Roman Empire. In other words, the Romans kept very meticulous records. That was exactly in AD 29. We can pinpoint it. And then just in case we haven't been pinpointed enough, he gives us a little bit of a wider frame and tells us about others who were also then in governorship. He spells out the rest of the bureaucracy that the Romans had set up. So Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 1826 to AD 36. Herod Antipas, he was ruler of Galilee from the city of Tiberias, 4 BC to AD 39. And this was the same Herod Antipas who would later imprison this John who we're going to read about this morning. And then we also read about Philip, the brother of Herod Antipas, governor of the area to the east of the Jordan. And they all ruled in this very same time bracket that Luke is here describing for us. Interestingly too, he points us to what was happening in the religious sphere among the Jews. We note that there were two high priests. Now there weren't actually two high priests. There was only one high priest appointed. Anna had been, Anna, sorry, had been the high priest, but he had been deposed and deported by the Romans. And in his place they had appointed Caiaphas. But the Jewish people didn't recognize Caiaphas. They still recognized Annas. And so here Luke mentions that fact. There was one position, but actually two people who were high priests, whether the Romans liked it or not. So this was a time of trouble. This was a time of confusion. And into this period steps John the Baptist. After 460 years of silence, God is again speaking directly to his people. Our text says, God's word came to John in the wilderness. Now, whether it was audible words or whether God put these words into his mind, God spoke directly to John the Baptist in the wilderness, telling him to start his ministry and what that ministry is to be. And God did this very much like he did with Abraham, with Samuel, with Elijah and with Jeremiah, those old prophets of the Old Testament. His ministry starts at a very specific time appointed by God. This ministry that John the Baptist was born for had now begun. This was the pinnacle of what he was born for. 
God had two tasks for John the Baptist. Firstly, he was to pre- prepare the people's hearts for the, this Messiah that was to come very shortly. He was to prepare their hearts. And we're going to be looking at that aspect today. And then secondly, he had to introduce them to the Messiah. And we'll look at that next time when we get around the communion table. He had to introduce them to this Messiah who would appear on the scene. And very much like Elijah, the great prophet in the Old Testament, John the Baptist was visibly and actively calling these people to what? To repentance. He had a very specific message. You are to repent. Just as God had promised in Isaiah chapter 40, when we look at those words in our text, they quoted for you. God had promised that this messenger would come with a very specific message, with a very specific task. You see, John was getting the the people ready to see the salvation of God, as our text says, from Isaiah chapter 40. He was getting people ready to see the person of Jesus Christ. He was getting them ready. He was making ready the way of the Lord for them. Just as workmen did, When a king was going to travel out into the desert to see his people, workmen would go ahead of this king and they would take away all debris in the road where he'd go. If it was a rough patch in it, they'd smooth it for him so the king would have a good, even trip. This was John's task. He had to prepare the way before the Lord. He had to make ready the way. And maybe this morning, as we contemplate these words from John, Maybe this is a time for you too to straighten out your life before the Lord. This is God's timing. This is God's very specific timing for this church with this message. And so what is he saying to you this morning? So let's set the scene a little bit. Into the scene steps John the Baptist, a very rough man, approximately 30 years old, We see that in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3. You can actually just put your finger in Matthew chapter 3 because it gives us quite a bit of detail there about this very same time. And he starts his ministry in the Jordan area, next to the Jordan River. There comes John the Baptist dressed in camel camel clothes or clothes made from camel skins, eating locusts, wild berries, wearing a big girdle, a leather girdle around so not a fine, a fine man, a big, respectable man. And he brings the startle, startling message to the people. What was his message? Verses 7 to 9. Matthew tells us that he was telling the crowds, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's about to be seen. That was his message. And then Luke kind of takes us to a very specific part of that message. John has been preaching to the crowds and onto the scene come the Pharisees and the scribes. Alright, do you get that in your mind? So here's the crowds with John the Baptist. He's busy baptizing them. He's busy saying to them, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the background he sees the Pharisees coming along. And they wouldn't have come quietly. They would have come with a lot of pomp and ceremony and people around them. They would want to be seen. And his next words couldn't have endeared him to them. You brood of vipers. 
Imagine if I said that to you. I'd probably get things thrown at me, wouldn't I? Well, I think the crowd was so big that maybe they couldn't throw anything yet. But this is what he says to them. He's busy preaching this conversion message. And onto the scene come the, come the scribe and the Pharisees. And they also want to be baptized. And this is just too much for him. He says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to come? Your father is already Satan. He must be the one who tried to get you to avoid God, avoid his judgments. Is that why you've come? Just to be baptized? To go through the motions? You brood of vipers. You see, vipers in those days, the desert little snake, was very small, but it was quite deceptive. It would lie around in a path, making as if it was a dead stick. And then when you were about to stand on it, it would bite into your leg or your foot or your ankle, and it would grip on. Through their legalistic hypocrisy, these Pharisees and religious leaders were leading the people astray when they should have been pointing them to the right road. And so he breaks out against them. He says, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Like snakes fleeing before a massive fire. Who warned you? And I can imagine the crowds would have thought, uh-oh, you don't speak like this to these guys and get away with it. But he does. Who warned you to try and avoid God and to avoid his judgment? The judgment which is already ahead of you, which is ahead of all men for all time, as predicted by Malachi. We looked at in chapter 4 verse 1, that judgment of God which still lies ahead of every single one of us too. Who warned you to try and avoid this by going through the motions of baptism? You see, whether you believe it or not, John came preaching a message of grace, but he didn't do it in a graceful way. A lot of people mistake that today as well. They think if you want to speak about conversion, you've got to be all flowery and soft about it. No. What was John the Baptist doing? He was preaching the truth with power and with conviction and speaking it for what it was. You see, he was speaking about God's grace. There's no place for flowery language. There's no place for soft music here. God's grace. Where were these leaders? Where were these religious leaders without God? You see, they were lost. They were helpless and they were dead. And he knew that. And so he can't mess around trying to placate them. You see, by God's grace, they were able to also come into the kingdom. It was available to them. God's undeserved favor. Yes, God could reach down to these religious leaders. He could reach down and create eternal life in them where there was at this moment only eternal death in them. And he could see. He could bring about newness of life as Romans 6 verse 4 says. And if this is resonating in your heart this morning, if you do not know the Lord, then listen to what he's saying to these Pharisees because the very same message applies to you as well. I won't use the word vipers towards you by the way. That was John and the Pharisees. But if you're lost, God can grant you too forgiveness, but he needs from you genuine repentance. And that was the crux of what John was saying to these Pharisees. 
You come for baptism, but what you need is genuine repentance, not another religious thing to do. God could turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, as we read earlier. He could give hope where there was only hopelessness. However, God required of them to give genuine repentance. As he does from you and I today. If you want to be born again, there needs to be genuine repentance in your heart. So what is that? What is true repentance? You see, God required of them to acknowledge that they were eternally lost without Him and full of sin. And these Pharisees wouldn't do that. They knew it all. They knew how to lead the people, but they weren't lost. They were sons of Abraham. God needed them to acknowledge that they were eternally lost and full of sin. He required of them to turn away 180 degrees from their sin and to be truly sorry for their sin as opposed to just pretending to be sorry. They had to stop relying on themselves and everything they knew and they had to turn to God for help. At this stage, they saw themselves as their own help. And then carries on John, they are to show the fruit of repentance. What is the fruit of repentance? It is actual sorrow for sin. Not just saying, I'm sorry, but there's no actual sorrow for sin. That's one of the fruits of repentance. It's actual turning away from sin. Not just saying, I will turn. They have to actually turn from their sin. It's an actual turning to God and away from yourself. It's an actual reliance on God and not on yourself. It is an actual day-to-day following of God and a trusting of Him. Not just saying you will. This might be the most important message you've ever heard in your life. And I'm speaking to believers and unbelievers here too. You need to make sure whether you believe in Christ as a reality in your life and whether you've got the fruit of repentance in you. It is actual fruit. Not just ideas in your head. You see, actual obedience, actual repentance is not just saying the right words, but doing it. Repentance is an inward renewal, but showing the fruits of repentance is an outward process. And I put that definitely there. It is a process. We don't show all those fruits all at the same time. They come out of us as God grows that faith in us. And so according to this definition, I've got to ask every single one of you sitting here today, every single one, are you born again? This is such an urgent message to you. Have you shown genuine repentance? And when you look at your life through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, do you see the fruit of repentance in your life? Do you see them? You see, every tree will bear fruit. It must bear fruit. But whether they are good fruit or bad fruit, that's what we need to look at. But you will bear fruit. Because as Jesus later says, by their fruit will you recognize. And so I need to ask you today, whether you've been in this church as a visitor today, or whether you've been here for the last 85 years, it doesn't matter. Are you like the Pharisees 
going through the motions of Christianity, yes, even for the last 85 years, but you know in your heart that Christ is not alive in you. There is good news for you today. God's grace is available to you today. But the question is, what will you do with it? Will you fall on your knees and ask Him to forgive you? Or will you turn your back and walk away and carry on with your religious going through the motions? In John's time, their sincerity of belief or their obedience was to be demonstrated by getting baptized publicly, right there and then. Talk about a quick response time. Right? You have to believe. Yes, you believe. Right. Get baptized. You see, baptism was not a new concept to Jews. Jewish baptism or ceremonial washing was practiced by Moses back in Leviticus. Chapter 8, verse 6. This is what it says. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And that word washed there is actual dunking. He dunked them with water. Alright? To make them completely clean before they became priests in God's service. Also Gentiles who converted to the Jewish faith also had to be dunked. They had to be washed clean ceremonially. And then they could come into the Jewish faith. The Pharisees and the people came to John for baptism and they thought it was just the usual going through the motions washing. Do you see what happens here? They thought when he said, you need to be baptized, that he was saying, you need to be ceremonially washed again. And so they were coming for baptism. However, John's message to them was very different. They hadn't heard this in such clear words before. Even Jews Children of Abraham needed to be transformed and then baptized. What? Us? But it's the Gentiles. No. John's saying to them, you need to repent and be born again and then you need to be baptized. You see, these people coming to him, Jewish or not, were filthy in their sin. They too needed to make straight paths for the Messiah in their heart. They too must allow him access into their hearts and ask him to remove any of those obstructions which were in them. The obstructions specifically in these Jewish hearers of self-righteousness and of smug complacency because of their physical lineage to Abraham. And I can imagine those Pharisees standing there saying, Who? Me? I need to be baptized? But I am a son of Abraham. What John was saying to them was, a heart change is required of you. Because by nature your heart is inclined to evil. It is evil. And then when you've been, when you come to conversion, then you are to be baptized to show your stand. You are to show what's happened. And so in that one aspect, John's baptism and Christian baptism are different. John's baptism was pointing forward to the coming work of the Messiah. Christian baptism today looks back to the finished work of Christ. But that's a whole separate sermon and I'm not going there now. But one thing was true to both of them. Baptism did not save anyone. By coming into the waters of baptism, no one was saved. 
You see, both in John's time and our time, it was merely an outward sign of an inner change of heart which had already happened, past tense. We've got to get that so clear. You see, there is so much confusion today about this as well. These Pharisees had as their security the fact of their lineage as Abraham's descendants and of keeping religious rules to save them. But they weren't children of Abraham based on faith. John had to point out to them that God could raise up children for Abraham from the very stones under their feet. You see, if God could make a man from dust, What stopped him from making children for himself from the rocks under their feet? God could bring anyone into the kingdom. And yes, even something that the Jews thought impossible, God could bring Gentiles from outside of Israel into his kingdom as well. And many today have this hang-up with false security, with their lineage, as their security in their lives as well. I want to spell out a few of these for you today. I've heard this myself. I've heard some people say, well, my mum and dad were really good Christians. So what does that make of you? You see, the old saying, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. You've got to be born again. You can't go on the fact that your, your parents were good Christians and think that's going to get you into heaven. Or maybe you've been baptized at some stage in the past, whether you've been sprinkled or whether you've been actually baptized, and you are holding on to that and saying, therefore I'm born again. Have you come to a place in your heart, in your life, where you've said, Lord Jesus, I need you to come into my life and to be the king in my life, to take away my sin, and from here on I follow you. Or maybe it's church membership. You've signed a card one day, you've got a card from a church, now you know I'm a member of Wanganui East Baptist Church. Well, yippity doodah. Yes, membership's important, but it doesn't bring you into the kingdom of God. Don't hold on to that card and think you're going to get to the portals of heaven one day and hold out your membership card. And say, now let me in please. You're going to be in for a rough surprise. Or maybe it's a one-off event. You went to this big gathering one day, there was a big evangelist speaking, and your heart was stirred, and you felt moved, and you said, yes Lord. But ever since then, your life hasn't been any different. Don't hold on to a one-off event, a so-called sinner's prayer, or a moment of conversion and think that's going to save you. The question is to you and I today, is your life different today? Because if it is, then yes, maybe something did happen at that big rally. Or maybe something did happen when you felt the stirrings of the Holy Spirit in your heart and you gave your life to God. The question is, is your life different today? What are the fruits that you are showing? Are you on a Christian walk? I've heard so many people in this little town of ours, when you speak to them, say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't see it in their lives. I don't see it in their decision making. I don't see it in the obedience to attend local bodies to come and worship together. But they're out there 
saying, I'm a Christian and they believe that. It's false security. They are nowhere near Christ. They are outside of Christ. They have no faith in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if they did, they would live lives which are obedient to him. Where is your life today with the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, God's security requires of you and I that his men, women, teenagers and children, are there any exceptions? No. Men, women, teenagers and children, we are all to come to him in an attitude of humble sorrow for sin and through Jesus Christ to ask for a clean and a new heart. That is what repentance is. And I ask you once again, have you been born again? However, I need to state something else here too, because this is also taught. No amount of repentance, or as the Catholics call it, confession, no amount of confession can ever merit or earn forgiveness in the sight of God. It doesn't matter whether you go and see a priest and go and confess your sins 100 million times in your life. If you haven't asked Christ to be Lord of your life, you will still be outside of him and you will still experience what it means to be in hell one day. I can't make it any plainer than that. You need to ask Christ to change your life around. And yet in the face of that, in the face of God's grace is the only way we can come to salvation, he still says to you and I, ask me. Isn't that fantastic? Now, I'm not finished with the warnings yet. I'm sorry. It's one of those passages today. Verse 9. You see these Pharisees were coming up to John and they were saying, we want to be baptized. And what does he say to them in verse 9? Chapter 3, verse 9. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So who are these trees that he's speaking about here? Is it just the Pharisees? We're safe today. It's just the Pharisees. No. Who are these trees that he's speaking about here? It's anyone that doesn't grow good fruit. It says their trees will be cut down, but only those which bear bad fruit will be cut down. In other words, everyone who bears bad fruit, you will be cut down too. And that means people who aren't sorry for their sins and who won't believe in Jesus Christ because only those will bear bad fruit. You see, God detests religious profession that does not bear fruit. It doesn't matter how many times you say you're a Christian, if your life does not bear the fruit of being a Christian, you are not a Christian. It's like saying, I am a hamburger. If you don't go through the process of being minced up and being put in between two pieces of bread, you are not a hamburger. doesn't matter how many times you say it, you are not. And I ask you again, are you a Christian? Do you look like a Christian? And I don't mean the clothes you wear. I don't mean the religious motions you go through. I mean, what are the fruits in your life? Are you a Christian? You see, God attests when we say we are and we are not. This is what he says, Revelation 3.16. I will spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 2.23. I am he who searches mind and heart 
And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Are you bearing Christian fruit? Is that clear? Verses 10 to 14. What was the people's response? I love this. Four words. What shall we do? Now some of those weren't genuine. They were there. They knew they were in trouble. They knew they had to do something and they kind of, yeah, okay, what will we do? That's not the type of people we're looking at here now. We are looking at the ones who are genuinely there and God had been working in them through this message and they came to John and said, John, what will we do? We've been baptized now, but what will we do now? How will we live our lives now? This has all happened. We're going to turn around from here. We're going to walk away from the River Jordan. We're going to go back to our jobs. We're going to go back to looking after our children. We're going to go back to serving in the temple. But how is that to look now? What are we to do? I love what he says. It's so practical. Verse 11. To the crowds he said, you go and be open-hearted and kind. You see, those were hard times they were living in. The Romans were oppressing them and every man was scrapping around to have enough for their families and enough to wear for their children. And he says, if you've got two tunics... You only need one at a time, don't you? Give one to someone that needs one. That is showing practical fruits of Christianity. It's hands and feet in action. Be open-hearted and kind. The tax collectors come to him, verse 12, and say, What are we to do? And everyone knew tax collectors. They were greedy, cruel, and unjust. They always used to charge much more than what they were supposed to. And what could you do about it? You had to pay Otherwise, your family got taken away to jail. What are we to do? He says to them, be scrupulously honest in what you do. Be scrupulously honest. He doesn't say to them, quit your jobs because who wants to be a tax collector? No, he says, be a good tax collector. Morally. Soldiers come to him as well. Now, the soldiers were known... either. Whether these were Jewish temple soldiers or whether these were Roman soldiers, they also come to him. And soldiers were known for their pillage of the people, for bringing false accusations so that they could get bribes from the people, for extorting the people. They come and say to him, so what must we do? And he says to them very practically again, act with absolute integrity as a soldier. You don't have to resign your commission, but act with integrity in your job. What is God saying to us today? It doesn't matter where you're involved. He expects us to have morally the highest standards in this world while we're living in this world. Whether that's in your job, whether that's with your finances, whether that's with your children, whether that's with your tax return, we are to be morally upright. Why? So that the world may know by our fruit that we are believers. That's it. I want to end this morning with four questions to you. Four questions. And I ask the Holy Spirit to really work in your life and my life this morning as we consider these questions. And the first question you've heard already, and I'm going to repeat it again. What is that? Have you been born again? In other words, have you genuinely repented? John the Baptist ministry was to get people ready for Jesus 
who would later come and die on the cross to save people from God's punishment for their sins. In other words, God's grace in action. But Jesus only comes for those who acknowledge that they have sinned. He's only come for the sick, not for those who think they are healthy. And so, if you understand that positionally, in other words, outside of Christ, you are dead. If you understand that and you acknowledge that before God, if you acknowledge before God that in your thoughts, in everything you say, in everything you do, you are outside of Christ and you need repentance and you're very sorry for that before Him, then He will give you forgiveness. He will change your heart and He will give you a new heart. You see, there's a difference, and please take note of this, coming out of the education sector, we had to do with this all the time. Our justice system has to do with this question all the time. There's a difference between being truly sorry for your sins and just being sad for getting caught for doing something wrong. You see, what do we do in the education? And I know I'm having a go now. What do we do? We put a plaster on a big problem, and the problem's just brewing underneath. It's a heart that's wrong. And what do we do? We say, oh, you're sorry you caught? Oh, poor boy. All right, well, detention and home you go and come back again another day and don't sin anymore. That's no true sorrow. That's just sorry for being caught. What do we do in our justice systems? They come into our court systems time and time again. The same old people circulating in and out. And what is it? Sticking plasters on people saying they're sorry. But it's not real sorrow for sin. We're not dealing with a heart, you see. That's the problem. Has a heart change taken place in you? Or maybe you've just been stirred to be sorry for your sins. That's not what we're talking about. Second question. If you say you have faith, then who or what have you put your faith in? God and His grace alone? Is that what you put your faith in? God and His grace alone? Full stop? Or have you put your faith in your, your faith in your abilities? Or maybe that past decision or that lineage, your mum and dad who were such good people? Or maybe that you live such a good religious life. I go to mass twice a year and you think you'll go to heaven. Are you putting your faith in things that will bear bad fruit? Pride? Self-righteousness? Third question. What does this fruit of repentance look like for you and I specifically? There's a message that's come to us now, and you know as the Holy Spirit stirs your heart, there's an area in my life that I know I've got to deal with because it's bad fruit. What is that area in your life? As you look at your daily walk with God, as you look at the way you handle your finances, are you modeling good fruit to your spouse? Are you modeling good fruit to your children? When your children have to look at your life and say, has dad got good fruit in him? This is what good fruit are. Do you see them in his life? Mum, do you see these things in mum's life? What would our children say? Are you modeling the good fruit to your fellow students if you're at uni or at school and you say you're a Christian? 
Are you modeling good fruit to your colleagues at work? In other words, what I'm saying is, does your walk match your mouth? To put it in plain language. You say you're a Christian, do you live like a Christian? Does your life match your claim? Or is there a little but word that comes up all the time? Yes, I am a Christian, and I try and live like a Christian, but, and then out it comes. What does the fruit of repentance look like for you specifically? And then lastly, what kind of fruit is Jesus looking for in your life and my life? Galatians 5.22 This is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, now, do a checklist on your life while we're reading through. Love, joy, peace, patience, oh dear, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Yes, in the car too. Those passions and desires that are regularly crucified to the Lord. That's a fruit of the Spirit. That walking by the Spirit daily. That's a fruit as well. These are fruits which show genuine repentance in your life. Do you see them? Because if you don't, you need to ask yourself the very last question. Is your faith real? I can't be more realistic about this. Is your faith real if you do not see these fruit? What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 to 21. I'll put it up here for you so you can see it for yourself. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, this is the important one, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You see, all trees bear fruit, every single one of us. But is it good or is it bad? And if it's good, then you know you've been born again. If it's bad, you haven't been born again. Black and white. I pray that the Holy Spirit will do His work in you and me as He needs to. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come to a passage like this where the Gospel message is proclaimed so loudly. It rings in our ears. And yet, Lord, we need that message to reach our hearts. And Lord, I pray for every single individual here today, including myself, that we would ask ourselves that question. Am I truly born again by the standards of Scripture, not by my own standards and definitions? Lord, may your Spirit point out this work in us. And if there are any here who do not know you yet, Lord, I pray that today will be the day when they will receive your grace at work, when they will bow their proud knees and acknowledge that without you they cannot live. They are dead eternally. That they would seek for forgiveness today. and That they would experience forgiveness today. That they would experience your grace at work and the change of heart that comes with Lord, do your work, we pray.
so that we can be an effective church in this little community of ours. Lord, help us to know whether we are believers before we try and take out a message into the community. Do your work, we pray. Amen.